morning, everyone. Uh, let's, let's just try that one more time, that you're awake. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. Excellent, excellent. So we're in the book of Judges, and we are right at the end of Gideon's influence and life. In fact, we're going to find out about his death just in a couple minutes. But Gideon, the entire story through chapter 6, 7, and finishing up here in Judges chapter 8, has been an incredible example of being steadfast, asking God for help, and God always, always being patient and gentle and overstepping with kindness and niceness to Gideon in order to build up his faith, courage, and strength. Great examples for us on how God interacts with us with patience and kindness. Now, if you remember back from the very beginning when we looked at chapter 1 of Judges with that introductory sermon that we had on it, I said, as we look at this book, it is a book of history, this book records the events that took place, but it doesn't always tell us, is it a good thing or a bad thing that takes place? And it doesn't always show God's approval or disapproval. It just simply is a record of what happened. And sometimes God will interject with, a, hey, that was good, or oh, that was bad, or people will acknowledge in the course of this history book, it was right or wrong. So we're going to encounter a few things today that the recorder of the book of Judges simply writes, this is what happened. Just because it's written, this is what happened, doesn't necessarily mean we should do it. I am overemphasizing this because it is super important that we don't do some of the things that happened in this chapter today. Are we all on board? Are we all in agreement? Yes, Tim? All right, excellent, excellent, excellent. So we're starting off right away in chapter 8, and if you remember from last week, Gideon's army, that army of 301, because Gideon was involved, totally routed out the Midians, and they are fleeing and fleeing and fleeing, and they eventually catch the two princes, and they're put to death, and they capture the two kings, Zeba and Zumunah, uh, Zalmunah, and they catch these two kings, and they exact revenge upon the Israelites who compromised and who were unsure. Do we support Gideon or the Midianites? Those that were unsure and took a middle-of-the-fence approach, they were judged harshly by God and by Gideon. And we pick up in the last couple verses, or the middle section of verses, verses 18 through uh, roughly 21 of Judges 8, and we have this text. Then he said to... Zabah and Zalmanah, the two kings of the Midianites that they captured, uh, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? This is Gideon asking the two kings, where are these men that you killed at Tabor? And they answered, the kings answered, as you are, so, that, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. Gideon is reminding them that during their raiding times in years past, they killed a bunch of people at the city of Tabar, which would have been in kind of the, the western part of Israel, northwestern part of Israel. And it just simply asked that random question for a purpose, as we see, what happened to those men at Tabar? And the kings, in beautiful diplomatic diplomacy, say, oh, they were valiant men, sons of a king, just like you are. 
You can almost see the, I'm trying to butter the bread here and just tell this guy he's awesome. And unfortunately, the people that died, they were awesome too. They were just like sons of kings, just like you. And I know Gideon can read through all this because this is what he says next. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. And as the Lord, Jehovah, the great I am lives If you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, this is Gideon, so he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmanah said, They're saying this to Gideon. Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zabah and Zalmanah, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. There's not much in the way of explanation that you need here. The two kings lost the battle. The victor confronts them, kind of puts them on a mini-trial. Their answers prove that they are definitely guilty of invading Israel and killing these physical blood brothers of Gideon. And Gideon has him killed. He asks his son first and foremost, do you want the honor? Kill him. He's young. He's afraid. He hesitates and he doesn't do it. The two kings say, you know what, Gideon, and I'm kind of paraphrasing this a little bit, you want to play the part of a man? You go do it. You kill us. And Gideon accommodates that request and kills him. And at the end of it, Gideon goes to his camels, the king's camels, and takes all their gold and ornaments, which become super important when we get to the next part. There's not much commentary I can give on this. There's not really a big spiritual boost of information that I can say, aha, this is how we live our Christian lives in light of this. Because this is revenge, right revenge through a just and right war, and the enemies of God who were invading and capturing and enslaving and tormenting the people of Israel were dealt with resoundingly over 120,000 of them paid with their lives for their invasion of God's people's land. All of it was just and right. It just is a little bit uncomfortable to read and think about. And as many times as I have read through children's Bible stories, they always stop at the story of Gideon after he gains victory. They never complete the rest of the story. They never talk about the king's just punishment before God. It doesn't talk about how their slick talking meant nothing. God sees through all that and judges it. And I guess maybe there is a spiritual lesson here for us. All that diplomacy and slick talking that we think we can do with God to justify what we're doing and how we're doing it, buttering him up on both sides, won't matter. He sees right through every scheme of man, every manipulative attempt every buttering up attempt. He sees right through it, and he exacts judgment. 
And these two kings received exactly what they deserved. Probably about two or three days ago, they thought they were just going to rush in and destroy everything Gideon had tried to accomplish by rallying the Israelite troops, and they got nothing from it. But their punishment, along with over 120,000 of their companions and comrades. We get to another section of Scripture. Gideon's confidence and compromise in verses 22 through 28. And let me read through this, and then we'll go back and talk about the text. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Oh, Gideon, you are indeed an amazing champion at this moment because he diverts Israel's eyes from the man to God, from his accomplishments to God. And I don't think this was one of those um, Academy Award speeches. Well, I'd like to thank so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and God, whatever they mean by that. I think he was genuine and said, I don't want to be your king. I'm the least of my family. I don't want this to become some kind of lineage of kings either. I don't want my son, my grandson to be involved in this. We did what God said for us to do. We stepped up and served just like we are to step up and serve. And that's it. I don't need any accolades. I don't want that power. I don't want to be in charge. God is in charge. And in fact, that is how God originally set up the rule of Israel. Not with kings, but him as king. And that's why Israel is called a theocracy. God ruled. Not a monarchy. King ruled. But a theocracy. God ruled. God did leave room in Deuteronomy for setting up a king in a certain way. And eventually Israel turns to that and says, we do want a king. Good and bad things happened from that. The first king they had was a terrible king, Saul. second king they had was pretty amazing, David. So it can work out. But Gideon knew this was not right for me. And this is not right for my sons or my grandsons. And this was not right for Israel. Israel had to be reminded visually and by Gideon's speech that God is in charge first and foremost. God needs to be honored, recognized, served, worshipped, and followed first and foremost. Because Israel so far up to this time had a problem with that. They were massively confused. Who do I follow? Well, God, well, but you have all these other gods out here, too. They're amazing. They do a lot of things. They don't talk. They don't communicate. They don't give. They don't serve. They don't honor. They don't show mercy. They don't forgive. They don't have power. They don't create. But they're awesome because they're made of stone and wood, and that's really cool to look at. And so they substitute a false god time and time again and reject the real god. And so Gideon has to remind them, all of this is possible, not through might or power, but through God himself every single time. And that is a spiritual lesson for us. Gideon, you are right. Don't take the accolades. Don't take the pat on the back. Don't take the titles. It's all meaningless compared to God. Point people to Jesus. Point people to him. Even in all of our successes, all of our successes, we can genuinely tell people the reason why you think I have success and you don't is not based on me or luck or breaks I've been given. It's based on God's guidance in my life, just like he guides your life 
recognize God in your life and not the accomplishments others pat themselves on the back for. Recognize God first and foremost. And Gideon does that. Awesome job, Gideon. You're my hero. You're my man. I know why people love that name, Gideon. Amazing. And so he says in verse 24, And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. Now it was, oh, uh, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Many different tribes in um, Arab countries, especially during this time of tribal warfare, they all had earrings, the men warriors. That was just something they had when they found gold and they conquered an enemy. They made earrings. It was a very common thing for them. And so he's saying, why don't you give me um, one of the earrings that everybody has gotten from their spoils? And they all answered, we will willingly give them. Now, without reading any further, do you think you know what happens at the end of these next few verses? What happens in your mind of Israel history when Israel takes a bunch of gold? What do they like doing with stuff like that? They turn it into idols, don't they? But certainly Gideon, a man of great confidence, a man who just pointed everyone to God, certainly Gideon is not going to make an idol, right? Some of you have read ahead. You have, and that is awesome. But we're going to go back to this. And so they will spread a coat, verse, 20, uh, verse 25, and they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. They kept all the rest of it, but this earring from everybody, remember there's at least 120,000 people they killed. So that's a lot of earrings. And the weight of the golden earrings that, had been that he had requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's a lot of gold, isn't it? It all depends if you know what a shekel is, right? Well, I wish I could clear this up for you because shekel in Hebrew and in Aramaic, same exact word, has a variety of weight differences. So this 1,700 shekels could be as little as about 40 pounds of gold, which still is not a small amount of gold, or as much as about 90 pounds of gold. Just depends on which type of shekel is used because there was a trading shekel, there was a money shekel, there was a warrior shekel. So all this, there was a whole bunch of different weights assigned to a shekel. So whether it's 40 pounds or 80 pounds, um, that was a lot of shekels that uh, Gideon ended up getting, all this gold. Besides, he also got the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. So their camels must have been decked out and as kings they were decked out in robes of purple which was a sign of royalty because it was a very difficult dye to make so only the rich of the rich received that purple dye clothing, clothing and all of the different ornaments, jewelry and, and, and necklaces and who knows, uh, what else they had, but it was a lot of precious metal that Gideon ended up with. And there was nothing wrong in Gideon asking for, you know what, in human terms, I was the one that just sort of stepped up and followed God. 
Nothing wrong in giving Gideon that honor of paying him a good fee for what he had accomplished. So there's nothing wrong in what Gideon asked for, except for the fact that Israelites have a hard time holding on to gold and not making it idle. So verse 27 comes in. Then Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So the Midianites were subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So Gideon gets all this gold, and he makes an ephod. Gideon, what are you doing making an ephod? And I know you're going to ask, Tim, what in the world is an ephod? I'd love to know too. It's a word that just simply means something made. He makes something that's made. But I think we can get a little hint about what it ended up becoming. It ended up becoming something that Gideon set up in his hometown of Ophrah. What else was in Gideon's hometown of Ophrah that was once set up? Do you remember what that was? It was an altar, wasn't it? It was an altar that worshipped who? Baal. And another pole that worshipped Ashrath. And what did Gideon do with those things that were set up? God told him, tear it down because it is an idol in the life of you and your family and all of the city. Tear it down. And he does it by night. Remember that whole scenario back in chapter 6? What does Gideon do after he has this massive victory? He puts up another thing, just something that is made, in the middle of the city that everyone in Israel goes, oh man, you see Gideon's ophod? Wow, I wish I had an ophod like that. That's amazing. Gideon gets it, we don't. And they all were jealous. Not of Gideon's relationship with God, not of Gideon's faith, but of an idol that Gideon made out of gold, and it was a snare to him, his family, and, and the entire land of Israel. Gideon, what did you learn from the entire experience you had with God? What did you learn in the end? To worship an idol? To make an image? To make people jealous of your wealth? What is it? Did you not learn that serving your God the way he's described and desires to be served should be your all in all? And yet you set this up, a monument to yourself? Everyone in Israel is not praising God because of it. They're lusting after it. They want it for themselves. You're not pushing forward the agenda of God. You're pushing forward the ephod of Gideon in the town of Ophrah. There's very few children's books that are honest about the story of Gideon that shows a strong man of God still struggles with sin in their lives. And I think we would all be wrong if we assumed, Gideon, if you did that in my life, I wouldn't do that second part of your life. I'd remain faithful to you. 
Isn't that our first reaction? Gideon, how could you have done that? Don't you know exactly what God did for you? And look at what you've done. I wouldn't have done that. God, why don't you give me an ephod of uh, 1,700 shekels? I'll take the gold. I won't make an idol out of it. I can do better. I would caution you that if you think you could do better, then I need to pray for you because you are setting yourself up for arrogance and pride and a fall that will be humiliating and will happen if you think you are above Gideon's actions. You and Gideon, Gideon and I are a lot alike. We love God. We want to serve him. There are times of great triumph where I step out in faith. There are times where I need God's reassurance and coddling in order to get there. And there are times where I point people, God's done this in my life. God's done this in your life. I point them to God. And there are also times of great confidence that I've got it. I don't have to worry about all this Bible reading, meditation, praying, thinking about God, loving God. I don't have to worry about all that fundamental, basic Christianity stuff. I got it all taken care of. And we walk into this world, and the world hits us with idol after idol after idol after temptation after temptation after temptation, and we fall to it because we are overconfident in our ability to resist temptation. Temptation is real and strong and powerful. And if someone like Gideon can fall to it with something so obvious, an idol made of gold that you put in the middle of your city, it cannot get more obvious than that. Gideon, if he can fall to it, there's the real possibility that we can fall to it as well. And to be overconfident in your spiritual strength and work of the past is dangerous. But for 40 years, by and large, the people of Israel followed Gideon's leadership and stayed as true to God as they could during that 40 years. Even though Gideon had set up this makeshift golden idol and people were jealous of it and Gideon found that it was a snare, yet the land had rest. Midian was done away with. And so we get to the very last section of Judges 8 and we find Gideon's obituary, starting in verse 29. Jerubel, which is the... uh, Gideon's name, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons of his own offspring, for he had many wives. Remember when I said the writer who's writing down this history book is just simply telling you the facts. They're not telling you, okay, this is a good fact or a bad fact, but we can see through the rest of Scripture, having multiple wives is probably a real bad thing because the Midianites occurred 
because Abraham's second wife that he had had seven, had six kids. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of problem having multiple wives. That's why God says, one man, one woman, love and live until either of you are taken. Uh, so, un- until death to us part type of thing. Um, so, Gideon had uh, 70 sons of his own offspring, for he had many wives. And verse 31, not only did he have wives, but his concubine, who was in Shechem, which is not considered a wife, but considered a live-in companion partner, um, bore him a son named Abimelech. And Gideon and the sons of Joash, the son of Joash, died in a good old age, and he was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Aborites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them out of the hand of all of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. In one generation, one generation from the amazing victory, everyone had just forgotten about it. Out of sight, out of mind. They still had the idol in Ophrah. They still had that ephod of gold that Gideon had erected. And then they decided, you know what, let's just make some more idols because because man's heart, as John Calvin once said, is an idol factory. We create passions to long after from our own heart. We don't need a gold or metal or wooden idol in front of us to bow down to and worship. We can do that without anything physically in front of us. We just hold on to a passion that is not God first, and we follow it, we dream about it, we want it, we long for it, we lust after it, we're jealous of it. And in less than one generation, they fell to worshiping false gods. Some things to take home. And we're going to go through this pretty quickly, but you can always catch up on Wednesdays in our YouTube Rewind Recap and um, bonus features of our message and find out the rest of the take-homes. But for us right now, one beautiful way of understanding idolatry is to understand loyalty. Idolatry is all about loyalty. Who are you loyal to? Who is your money loyal to? Who is your time loyal to? Who is your vacation loyal to? Who is, or, or, or what has your loyalty when it comes to your thoughts, your dreams, your passions? Who has the loyalty? If it is stuff, if it is impressing people, then that is an idol in your life. If it is a person that you are loyal to above God, then that is an idol in your life. If you're more loyal, and I I mean this to shock you. If you are more loyal to your spouse than you are to God, your spouse is an idol in your life. Do you see that? Do you understand that? That's radical. I mean, and I know that sounds, well, we're supposed to be loyal to our wives and husbands. Yes, we are. But if you are more loyal to a person than you are to God, that person is an idol in your life, pure and simple. Now, there are two ways 
in which we can protect ourselves from idolatry. And I'm gonna give you a radical way and I'm gonna give you a not so radical way. The radical way of dealing with idolatry in our lives is found in Matthew chapter five. And um, just so you are aware, I'm sure you are aware, Matthew chapter five is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And who is the one who's talking in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus Christ. Okay, and not that these words of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount are more inspired than the words we just read, but sometimes when you have a Bible and it's all in red, the red text, Jesus speaking, you kind of take that more serious or it is more impactful because Jesus said it. All the scripture is Jesus spoken, God spoken, but sometimes when he says it, we kind of go, okay, that's like God really authoritative. Um, this is how he tells us to deal with idolatry, sin in general. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Yeah. Uh, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole body be thrown and cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. That's the radical way to deal with sin. Is simply remove it. Like a cancerous growth, remove it, eliminate it, it's gone. Stop playing with it, stop touching it, stop thinking about it, stop looking at it, stop lusting after it, stop being jealous about it, just end it. I'm telling you, if pornography is a problem in your life with your phone or your computer, get rid of them. It's not worth it. If debt and spending and having stuff is a problem for you, then cut up those credit cards today. It's not worth it. There is also a gentler way of dealing with sin and temptation and idolatry. God takes it to, in the Sermon on the Mount, level 10. Here's level 10, DEFCON 5 or whatever the toppest level is, here we are. And so just all nukes out. But there are other ways of dealing with it. One of those other ways of dealing with it is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me read those. And this is in a section where uh, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth has amazingly horrific problems as a church. Just massive problems from everything, from getting drunk at the Lord's Supper to having incest relationships to bad leadership to bad... I mean, it's just really not a church that... Uh, it, it, great examples of what not to do as a church. But here they're having a ma major problem, so Paul addresses it, and I think this is great application for us in dealing with sins, temptations, especially idolatry. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the first few verses, and Paul starts out by saying, Now concerning food offered up to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. That might sound very confusing, 
But really what Paul is getting at is saying, on both sides of this argument, a lot of you think you know what you're talking about, but you don't. Because you guys aren't even practicing love. And if you were really all that knowing about the details of this, love would be so clear in your lives, I wouldn't even have to write this. Okay? And then he goes into the exact point. He goes, therefore, as to the eating of food offered up to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, for that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are, so, there are many so-called gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, one Father, whom through, who, who, <clears throat> whom through are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things and through whom we exist." Paul says there are no such things as false gods, really. They don't exist. They're in people's minds, imaginations. They're not real. They have no power. God the Father created all things, and we exist through him. And Jesus Christ created all things, and we exist through him. Our identity with God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ is vital in our fighting against loyalty problems. When we understand who we are in Christ and what Christ has done, that is a great way to fight the temptation of idolatry because we are constantly reminded of what Gideon did. The Lord gave victory. I am who I am today because of the Lord and I need to be better and that's gonna happen because of the Lord. Reminding ourselves of our identity in Christ is vital. Who are we in Christ? Because all those idols, all those other passions, all those other loyalties are fake loyalties, fake passions, fake realities. They have nothing over God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's the band come up. I'm going to close us in prayer, and then uh, we'll sing our last song. Father, we are grateful and thankful for the loyalty that you've shown us. Father, if we could be just partly that loyal, our lives would be free from so many of these burdens and snares that we put ourselves in. Poor Gideon put that snare in front of everybody and they fell to it. Lord, help us to put not snares in front of others, but opportunities to love, opportunities to minister and serve and forgive, opportunities to walk together without stumbling. Help us, Father, to remind ourselves of our identity in you so that we might stay loyal, as loyal as you are to us. In Christ's name, all of God's people said, amen. Please stand. Let's sing.